Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Okay, so get ready for this conversation with Dr. Jonathan Hall, because we really go in depth on the role that racism and white supremacy plays in academia, his research and his experiences in hunting. Yep, I said hunting. So Jonathan is an assistant professor at the Department of Geology and Geography at West Virginia University. He is an ecologist interested in non-human species conservation in human-dominated landscapes. He applies his interest in his current research to understand how landscape and environmental dynamics involve the recovery and range of California condors. Condors are critically endangered. We went from having 27 individuals in 1992 to over 400. And Jonathan also mentions that he is the only African-American with a PhD involved in California condor rehabilitation project. So we talk about how that feels and how he is working with multiple stakeholders to take an interdisciplinary approach to conservation. The other chunk of the conversation is dedicated to discussion on an infamous article Jonathan wrote titled Notes from an Angry Black Hunter, Guns, Genocide and the Stolen Ground You Own. So this article is an expression of Jonathan's frustration with how white America has been resistant to acknowledge that we stand on stolen land and how that impacts how he moves in natural spaces, say, when he's hunting. We talk about how U.S. society will not fundamentally change unless white people embrace the discomfort that comes with being white. The good news is there are millions of people of color who are ready to work with the white community on building a truly just society. So take your time to listen to this conversation because although we recorded it months before Black Lives Matter protests emerged, the discussion is sadly very relevant to the current situation and has been for centuries. I hope this conversation can take us one step further towards achieving racial equity and justice in America. Happy listening. Let's get started with our first question here, which is, could you share with us some of the experiences that have shaped your interest in the environment? Earlier when we spoke, you talked about kind of you went through this evolution of various environmental related professions from being a veterinarian to a snake venom biologist. And so take us through some of what that was. Sure. So my interest in kind of the natural world began with watching PBS or watching nature on PBS with my family on Sunday nights. And that was a really formative experience because it just helped me to see what sorts of animals and environments were out there separate from my own. And I just became really fascinated with that. And also that helped spur on my interest in dinosaurs. So, you know, I was a dinosaur kid and like knew the names of all the dinosaurs and that was just really neat. And I think it was like just the variety and the difference. And then what did it mean for Dinonychus to have a sickle claw on its second toe? Like, what was that used for? That's so cool. And 
Ankylosaurus being this like armored tank dinosaur. And so I think I was just really like fascinated with all the different varieties that life can take on. So as growing up and going through school, it was, you know, how do I keep this interest in animals and the natural world central, but then also turn that into a career, right? And my parents had a difficult time imagining where I am right now as an ecologist and a geographer. So for them, it was like, okay, we have this child who's interested in animals. So what do they do? How do we encourage them to go into a career that's going to sustain them and, and everything? So, oh, veterinarian. So go be a veterinarian. Yeah. And that'll be awesome. You get to do that stuff. And I went to a veterinarian camp in high school at Tuskegee. So I had a really awesome sort of like black veterinary experience. Yeah. What's that like? It was really interesting. It was one of the first times that I had been away from home for an extended period of time, and definitely one of the first times that I had been in like an all-black, like academic summer experience. So I grew up in Columbia, Maryland, which is a planned community. It wasn't very racially diverse when I grew up. So I didn't grow up around a lot of black folks and people of color. So it was a little bit awkward for me in that setting, but it was also really incredible because I got sort of the first indoctrination to like a black academic environment. And it was really, really awesome. It was hot because it's Tuskegee in yeah. the summer. So it was uncomfortable. <laughs> Lots of humidity too. Oh, yeah. But it was really awesome. But I think I also realized that I didn't want to be a veterinarian. I didn't want to, to have that career, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted, how I wanted to turn my interest in animals. I did something. So then when I got to college at Morehouse, I was taking classes and I uh, was a biology major. Most of the biology majors go on to medical school. And I knew that I didn't want to go on to medical school because I still was really interested in animals. And so that's when the snake venom biologist idea came because I had heard about, I don't know if he's a researcher or a collector or what, but he had decided that he was going to inject himself with a diluted cocktail of snake venom to try to build up a natural immunity to snake bites. And it worked. So I was like, oh, that's really cool. I want to do that. And then keep a bunch of snakes and, and <laughs> just get have them help bit by them. <laughs> get bit by them and turn into a superhero. <laughs> but then also realizing that most of the people who die from snake bites are people of color in rural communities. They don't have access to the medicine. And then <laughs> this really what really drove this idea home was when I was at my first year at Morehouse, I was an intern at the Atlanta Zoo and my mentor was the curator of invertebrates at the Atlanta Zoo. He's also a professor at Morehouse, Dwayne Jackson, not Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> the Rock, <laughs> but the he might rock. as well be. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a noble job. Um, it, is. <laughs> it is. And the Atlanta Zoo at the time was one of the few zoos in the country that actually kept black mambas, mm. which are one of the few animals that I'm absolutely terrified of because they're just hyper-aggressive snakes and they're really, really venomous. It's the fastest snake in the world. They can yeah. slither at like 12 or 15 miles an hour. They're just, ugh. Surprise! One bite's enough to, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> One bite's enough to kill like a, a whole herd of elephants. It's just, uh. they're just gnarly. But the one of the curators of the Black Mamas at the Atlanta Zoo was bitten by one of the snakes. And it was like a six-month recovery in the hospital because the venom just like Black Mamba Venom, it's really toxic stuff. And everybody reacts differently to it. And his reaction was really bad. And so I was like, oh, it's a sign. I need to do this. 
But then I realized that getting an MD PhD was going to be a tremendous amount of school. It was going to be expensive. And I was going to be in the lab most of the time. And I didn't want to do that. So mm-hmm. I still majored in biology, but I got a, a minor in environmental studies and then went to graduate school thinking I was going to work with social insects because I had done an undergraduate thesis on termites. And that ended up not working out in terms of the lab I was hoping to join was not a place for graduate students because the director had just been appointed to an administrative position. So I worked in an aquatic ecology lab and realized that I was interested in human-wildlife conflict. And through that process, really became interested in what humans were doing and not so much how to impact wildlife communities to make them more resilient to humans, to really kind of have more of a confrontation with the way that human beings are living. So that's, that's kind of like the arc of, of my journey and interest in the natural world. Yeah, and thank you for sharing that. It's a very interesting or intriguing journey, I should yeah. say. Yeah. You've learned so many cool things along the way and you just kind of like explored, experimented with what you might like, might not like, but you gave it a try at least, right? which is great. And it's not something that, that comes by often to be able to have that opportunity to explore kind of your way through a particular career. Yeah, I'm very fortunate that I've had good mentors and patient parents and good friends to kind of help me walk through this process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thank God for patient parents. Yes. <laughs> they make a world of a difference. Yeah, absolutely. So now that you're focusing on the anthropogenic threats or threats to the natural environment, you've kind of translated that into your current research on the California condor. Tell us a little bit about what are those threats and how you became interested in California condors. And you've also in the past also done research on other predatory birds. Is that, would that be the term? Yes, for them? scavenging birds. Scavenging birds, sorry. They look like predators, but they're scavengers, (laughs) vultures in Rajasthan, India. Yeah. So tell us about your fascination and appreciation, I I guess, is for those birds. Sure. When you look at ecosystems, there are points, niches within ecosystems that I think give you a sense of how the ecosystem is functioning, right? And so when you look at scavengers, scavengers are responsible for disposal of large animal carcasses that have died. And if they're not present in the same way that if the people who collect your garbage don't come and collect your garbage, then like it really kind of gums up the whole system. And the same is the case for scavengers, carrion eaters. And so in Rajasthan, during my dissertation research, I was interested in the connection between a particular group of people, the Bishnoi people of Rajasthan, and how their protection of a tree species that they had deemed sacred was related to the presence of other wildlife. And so this tree species was central to the ecology of rural Rajasthan. And most people, most non-Bishnoi people, will lop the tree branches and sort of use the tree in particular ways, either feed their livestock or for fodder or for a bunch of different purposes. But the Bishnoi don't lop the tree branches because this tree is sacred. It's a legume species, so it helps with soil nutrient cycling and these sorts of things. And so the Bishnoi have like a different practice of interacting with this tree. But this tree also happens to be a place where vultures nest. And vultures are really important in rural Rajasthan and in any environment, but particularly in 
Rajasthan where people have livestock, but most of the people don't eat their livestock. And of course, cows are sacred, right? So they're not consumed. But just like any creature, any, any animal, they live and they die. And so what happens to these large populations of livestock when they die? Well, the vultures are there to clean up the carcasses and keep the environment relatively clean. And people for hundreds of years have taken their livestock to a particular spot where the vultures come and eat and feed and clean up. And the system works, at least from an ecological standpoint, relatively smoothly. So I was interested in whether or not the presence of Bishnoi was associated with the presence of these vultures and these trees. And it turns out that that is the case. But what's happened recently in India, it's also happening across sub-Saharan Africa in many places, is that vultures are being poisoned from chemicals that are entering the system. And in Rajasthan, it had been through a livestock drug that was administered to animals and just so happened to be toxic to the birds if they ate animals that had been inoculated at a certain time. So vulture populations in India have crashed. And that's the same the case for California condors and many other scavenging birds that have been living in areas where they're humans. Human beings have changed the way that ecosystems function and it introduced new things to the environment that are not good for lots of scavenging birds. And so for California condors, it has been the depletion of their food through the killing of buffalo and just transformation of landscapes and the extirpation of large mammal species. So that's one aspect, the, the sort of the physical transformation of forest communities and just all sorts of environments such that, you know, nesting habitat, foraging habitat, these sorts of things have changed. And more recently for California condors, it's been the use of lead ammunition for hunting. And so right now that is one of the persistent threats to California condors. And so there were 22 or 27 individuals left at the lowest point. And when was that? The 1970s? 1980s, yep. And so the very famous captive breeding program, which was a big success and really innovative and really awesome that's still going on today, has brought this population from the mid to low 20s back to over 500 individuals in various populations. But the sort of the stall point right now is how do we as researchers and managers continue this population growth of California condors in such a way that that is successful without us monitoring? Because every condor that's in the wild is tagged with identifiers like wing tags, radio tags, or GPS telemetry tags. We know what birds are out there, who's breeding with whom, and then the new birds, once they fledge the nest, put a tag on them so that we can keep track of them. But that's not sustainable, right? Especially if we want to have populations, wild populations in the thousands, which is the ultimate goal, like we can't monitor every single bird. But we know that these birds are still dying from ingestion of lead. California has instituted a lead ban that's just now kind of like gotten to the point where you know you can't buy lead ammunition in California anymore. And when you want to buy ammunition, you have to like go through a state agency or a licensed state agency. And so that of course took a lot of a lot of work politically, right, to put that regulation in place. So far it's working well in terms of lead's less present on the landscape, but it's a continued threat. Microtrash is another threat to condors. And so all of these things are things that directly come from the ways that human beings are living. And there's only so much that managers and researchers can do to kind of mitigate what humans are doing before we really have to have a confrontation and, and a conversation about, we need to change the way that we're living. Because monitoring these birds, 
and treating the ones that get lead poisoned and bringing them in enough numbers so that we can replenish the population. That's only going to take us so far. So yeah, that's where the work is right now. That's sort of what I'm working on, but it's a challenging thing, right? Yeah. I mean, who would have thought that we thought that, okay, if we just bring up their populations, then problem solved and now we're doing it. But wait, we have another problem. (laughs) You know, the first problem is that we kill them off and we killed off the buffalo that they were dependent upon. And now we're kind of inadvertently poisoning the animals that we're hunting. I remember learning about the California condor project when I was in in undergrad and I thought, wow, like if we can just get the population up, like (laughs) it'll be great, fantastic. Who would have thunk? (laughs) Right, exactly. And I think that one of the things that's come from working in conservation and ecology It's the same sort of realization that I had when I was reading papers as a graduate student and thinking about then it was like walleye populations in Lake Erie Mm -hmm. and how to bring back walleye populations and keep them up so that they could be fished and they could be part of the ecosystem. And, you know, I just kept coming across articles and things that were sort of offhandedly mentioning, like, we know that aquatic ecosystems are suffering from high inputs of nutrients, which lead to algal blooms, which lead to anoxic zones, which lead to fish die-offs. And then it would sort of like move on. So it's like, okay, so now we're studying the way that walleye move in this particular way so that we can increase fish stocks and these sorts of things. And, and I always wanted to be like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> wait a minute. Agricultural inputs from industrial agricultural practices, like, can we stop there and talk about that? And I think it's a difficult thing to do particularly because, you know, having conversations about the way human beings are living crosses multiple different disciplines and invariably involves political issues and social issues. And then we start talking about like power and structural racism and these sorts of things. And then like, oh, no, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about that. Structural what? No. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just figure out. Stop there. (laughs) Let's just figure out how to keep these birds alive or keep these fish alive. Right. So. It's been a practice and patience and sort of me doing more research on my own to understand these structures. So I wasn't, you know, trained as a social scientist and was very ignorant of the histories of, you know, structural racism and power and these sorts of things, even as a Black person, just by virtue of like my academic career and trajectory. So I've had a lot and I'm still doing a lot of catching up, but it has been some of the most rewarding work that I've done trying to make these connections within this field because the connections have been made in other fields, but within the field of ecology and conservation, there's still a lot of work to do to make these connections explicit. Right. You bring up a really good point in that there's an intersectionality in how we should be approaching our conservation challenges in a sense. And it can't be just focusing on the biological aspect of bringing back the vultures. We also have to look at the socioeconomic and the political factors that are playing into the future success and well-being of that species. And then structural racism. (laughs) Tell us more about how you found that impacting your work with the California condors. In 10 words. In 10 (laughs) words. I'm kidding. (laughs) The story of structural racism and the role that structural racism plays in this research is embedded within what kind of landscape we're talking about, Mm -hmm. the California condors coming back to, and what sort of landscape they occupied before their numbers plummeted. 
And so for me, a lot of the conservation concerns, particularly in North America, but really across the globe, are rooted in our white colonialism, right? This idea that the so-called great powers of Europe spread across the world and dominated other peoples and other cultures for resources, but also just transforming ecologies. Right. We think about the way that the ecosystem functions across different environments in North America, it looks very different from what it looked like 600 years ago when Europeans were not present in any sort of meaningful numbers here in what's now known as North America. So, you know, I always go back to this question of when was the last time buffalo were not in peril, condors were not in peril, or name any other species that's currently in peril. When was the last time they were doing okay? (laughs) Oh, I don't know. (laughs) The answer is before white people got here. Yeah, yeah. But that's a very, very difficult concept to even hint at within those spaces because most of the people who are doing this work now are white. Mm -hmm. I've been going to Condor meetings for three or four years now, and this past year's one was the first time I saw another Black person that was there. And I'm pretty sure I'm the only Black person with a PhD who's working on California condor. And so, you know, when we think about like conversations about diversity, racial diversity, and what diversity brings to any sort of situation where problems need to be solved, yeah, the rhetoric is like, oh, we love diversity. It's really important. It make, helps us make better decisions. But there we see this consistent lack of racial diversity representation that's there. The other thing that's interesting, though, particularly with condors, is that indigenous communities have been involved, and at least with the sort of settler scientists that are working on these right now, they and we are beginning to recognize more that indigenous people need to be part of the conversations that are happening. Right. But again, that like brings up stuff, right? Because then if we're talking about indigenous communities wanting condors back on the lands that they occupy now, which are look nothing like the lands that they occupied before, Europeans sort of forced them off and change the way that they live, then we have to talk about, you know, the violence that the United States has and continues to enact on indigenous communities and the ways that the settler state wants to and must control indigenous communities in order to to remain legitimate in their own eyes. And so there's conflicts that are coming up there just about who gets to speak and who's doing the research and how they are approaching that work and whether or not it makes sense for condors to be reintroduced into certain areas. There's a really interesting article exchanged a couple of years ago between folks in the Nez Perce tribe and one of the condor OGs, one of the first people to do research with condors and to help bring them back. And it was a very predictable conversation of sort of like, I don't, uh, on the one side, the settler scientists said, I don't think it makes sense to bring condors back to a particular region where the Nez Perce are because there's no account of these birds being there from European records, right? So again, like prioritizing European records. And a bunch of other sort of things that signal, even though this person didn't say it, that they don't think that the claims of indigenous people to have these species that they were much better stewards of for millennia before white settlers came, they don't think that those claims are legitimate. So that's kind of how it shows up, like having an accounting of the history and then how that history lives within the current research practice today. And then how do we account for that and then build solidarity and move towards a common goal? Because we do have a common goal, right? We want these birds to be back on the landscape. 
Right. But I think there's different tactics that we value and think that are important depending on who you are. Right. And what histories you're willing to acknowledge and, and sort of sit with. Right. So this is a great opportunity for bringing Indigenous communities to be part of the rehabilitation process for a particular species, but also habitat, and they bring their Indigenous knowledge. Are there any particular stories or situations that you can share with us as you've worked with the Indigenous communities on how we've learned from their knowledge and how we've implemented that into your project to help the California condors? So I haven't actually worked with any Indigenous folks. So these are kind of like my observations as somebody who's kind of within this sphere of condor research and sort of making, I've had sort of conversations during like breakout sessions with some of the folks from the Nez Perce tribe, but those are just sort of like conversations of getting to know people and sort of understanding things. But I think one of the things that made that conversation possible was the fact that I and this other person who's part of this community were noticing the lack of acknowledgement of these histories and it being part of the ways that we talked about how do we move forward as people who are concerned about condors. But it's definitely something that I'd like to continue to do. But one of the things that's you know different with working with communities who have largely been excluded from academic settings and largely been excluded from the settler colonial project is that there's just like a different way to relate, right? And so it's not the same as like sending an email and sending a grant proposal and saying like, hey, let's collaborate. And it's like, let me get to know you <laughs> as a person, which as a Black person, I think that's much more familiar to me than just sort of like the very perfunctory let's do business sort of aspect of the way that like a lot of research gets done. It's like, well, tell me about yourself. Tell me about what you're interested in. Let's get to know each other as human beings. And then we can determine whether or not we actually have the same goals and the same methods to reach that goal. And then we can move forward. So I feel like I am in the very early stages of working more explicitly or or possibly working more explicitly with indigenous communities. But one of the things that I've learned simply from observing and simply from reading the ways in which indigenous people talk about the environment and talk about non-human species is the importance of reciprocity and being in relationship. Robin Wall Kimmer wrote a book called Braiding Sweetgrass, which I feel like it rewired my ecologist brain in Mm -hmm. an awesome way. And I think gave me a lot of language to think about the ways in which I was troubled by how the rhetoric within ecology and conservation functions and use it in a different way and use those concerns in a different way. And so my biggest thing sort of moving forward with this research is that it's important that the people doing the research take a critical look at how we function and that we are not separate from the impacts that we have on these species. And if we really want to bring them back, then we have to take a critical look and do some some healing and really hold ourselves accountable for the structures that we put in place. And if we do that, then condors come back. I mean, if we remove lead from the landscape, then condors will stop dying from lead poisoning, in large part. If we have better structures in place to handle our waste, then condors come back. If we stop using harmful industrial chemicals, then condors come back. If we manage landscapes in a way that resembles the millennia of history of of fire present in these landscapes, 
then condors come back, right? Now we're at a stage where we have these huge conflagrations, and that's because of the settler colonial practice of stopping any fire. Any fire is bad, right? What we, and by we, meaning people who are not indigenous to these lands, what we're learning is that that's a bad idea, and that indigenous people you know, use fire in this landscape in a very responsible way that didn't cause the catastrophic damage that we see now. So if we yield power and authority to those people who know better than we do, <laughs> then we're good. And I think the resistance within any field, any settler colonial field, is like that, that idea of yielding power and influence in these areas kind of like undermines our economies and undermines like the way that we function. So that's really scary, right? And it's part of these protests of like, open the, reopen the government because <laughs> Americans don't know how to exist without, a, you know, a capitalist economy. Yeah. And it's absurd because it's literally going to and has killed people. But we, we are insisting because we don't know any other way. It feels like the end of the world yeah. if our economy doesn't function. And I think for a lot of folks working in the conservation field, it feels like the end of the world if we abdicate authority to indigenous people, because it's like, what am I supposed to do with myself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why am I here? <laughs> Why am I here? And that's a very good question that we should all be asking ourselves. We can't run away from that question. So, yeah. yeah. Gosh, it's a bigger conversation that takes a lot of introspection, but I'm in agreement with you on creating projects that are in solidarity and that are respectful of every group's values and principles within reason <laughs> and with a common goal of protecting a species and the habitat with which it depends on. So there's something interesting that you said earlier on that you are the only African-American with a PhD in California condor research. As far as you know. As so far as I know. Next thing yeah. I Google it, be like, no, it's not just Jonathan. <laughs> Kidding. I already Googled it. It's just you. <laughs> not that I ever doubted you, but so it may be me just like projecting, but as you're building your credibility as an African American man in the conservation community, have there been any challenges? And if so, what have those looked like in how are you overcoming those challenges? And I think this would be like good tips to share with other mm -hmm. professionals who are in a similar situation where they feel like they have to keep proving their knowledge and their expertise to a community that is not used to seeing them in those spaces. Ooh. Where this to begin? Only, this is only an hour <laughs> podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's been challenging on a number of fronts. I think anyone who has been the only in an environment where they are not expected to be present, just the sort of like routine daily surprise that people have by seeing you present gets exhausting, right? Mm -hmm. Just sort of like, oh, what do you do again? Like, why are you here? Like, I need you to tell me why you're here because I didn't expect you to be here, that sort of stuff. And so I've had experiences where people have given me that look. And I think every person of color knows that look of like, huh, Oh, okay. And like recalibrate, <laughs> right? Like recalibrate. I didn't expect to see a brown face here. Okay, that's sort of like relatively minor, but nonetheless taxing sort of thing to actually people. You know, I had somebody say to me, like, "I don't understand. Who are you?" I was having a conversation with somebody else. At, this is at the condo meeting. I was having a conversation <laughs> with somebody else. Person was running the meeting, and another person came up to me 
and said, they were listening to our conversation and then just like butted in and said, wait, who are you? Like, what? I don't understand. Like, who are in? Who's <laughs> just like, I'm like, well. <laughs> and what's incredible is that this person had met me before. Oh, no. <laughs> at the previous year, right? And so, I don't know. I'm always, I'm going off a little bit of tangent, but I'm always amazed by white people who don't recognize the only brown person that they've ever encountered in their profession and not remembering them, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to say, how many black people have you ever met in this setting, ever? Yeah. You don't recognize me? So there's that, just from an interpersonal standpoint. And then I think the pressure that comes with making sure that you, and understanding that you represent more than just yourself, right? So if you give a bad talk, as a white person in a white space, then it's just Jerry giving a bad talk, right? But Jonathan, as the only black person, gives a bad talk at a Condor meeting, then people are like, well, yeah, that's why we don't see more black people here, because black people can't really give good talks, right? Like, And I think that many people would balk at that, but we're socialized to think that way. And certainly white people are socialized to think particular ways. And it's the social structures that are in place you know, make it easy to think that, to come to those conclusions, even if subconsciously. So there's that pressure of making sure that all my I's are dotted and my T's are crossed. But then when it comes to talking about race explicitly within these spaces, I think that there's an added challenge because there's so much that you have to explain to get people to the point to understand that race structures everything. I love the analogy of those two fish that are swimming together And one fish turns to the other and says, what do you think about this water that we're swimming in? And the fish goes, what's water? (laughs) So like, how do you explain? And I think there's a similar Herculean task of trying to explain race to people who largely don't see it and don't have to, right? All they have to do is like the fish. All the fish has to do is just keep swimming and breathing the water. They don't have to know what water is. And for a lot of white people, all they have to do is just like keep existing and breathing. Right. They don't have to understand what race is or racism is. Yeah. Even though it affects them. So trying to get to the point as a black person or a person of color in, in this field to sort of bring these things about and not knowing how resistant people are to these ideas and spending the time to get to know people enough to be able to suss out like who can I have this conversation with and who can I not have this conversation with. Yeah. And then how to have this conversation and then how to mitigate the white fragility and the resistance that comes up while still (laughs) getting invited to do this research and building collaboration. Yeah. It's a lot. It's just a lot. And the last thing is outside of the specific work that gets done, I really miss having black colleagues. You know, I went to an HBCU and I had this black academic experience and there was like there was no explanatory pause or explanatory comma. There were just things that were understood by being a person of color, being a black person within any setting that you just kind of look to the other person and be like, "Did you hear that? Yeah, you got okay, cool. We got yeah. we were on the same page. We're on the same page. Yeah. all without words." But I don't have that. So when somebody says something casually racist that either they meant or that they didn't know, like I can't like look to the other room and look to the other. <laughs> Did he just say people. that? Did you just say that? <laughs> And, and, you know, forget like looking to see somebody else understanding, but then to like speak to that, right? Because ideally you'd be like, wait a minute, hey, that was racist. What you just said was racist. But 
you got to have homies when you're doing that, when you're confronting that. And I don't have that. So it's challenging. At the same time, it is really rewarding to make connections with people who don't have to understand these issues. And they do, or they're interested, or they're open to having these conversations. And it's also nice when um, people are like, oh, I didn't realize that you really pointed something out to me. It'd be nice if I got paid for that labor, but (laughs) (laughs) I don't. But it's nonetheless rewarding. Right when you're able to help bring somebody into a different state of consciousness that they value. And obviously, you know, I value that as well. So, Yes, thank you for sharing that. It's a lot. I think I'm still trying to figure it out. And I guess it would be a session for another day. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm finding myself in a space where do I just be educator or do I be non-educator? And... I guess what I'm finding is that in some situations where you feel like there's potential benefit or a positive outcome that can result from education, then you can put that labor, that unpaid labor into it with the hope for greater change. And in some situations, it's just never going to change. So you just let it go, right? Yeah. And you just nod to the air or ask yourself, like, did you just hear that? What just happened? (laughs) Exactly. And you don't really quite move on. I think for me, it makes a dent somewhere in my existence with each Mm -hmm. experience like that. But it's also just kind of moving on from it. I think what you just said kind of expressed itself very well in an article that you wrote recently. And you're talking about what it means to be hunting wild black. Mm -hmm. At first I was like, oh, he's an ecologist and he hunts. But I'm not surprised, not because it's you, but it's just the old me who was more of like conservative conservationist or whatever would have been like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, that you can't do that. But (laughs) that was just me being judgmental back in the day. Right, exactly. (laughs) That story kind of like reminded me of who I was back then. But it's at the same time, the way you expressed yourself in that article was just on point. So I'm hoping that you can redo that here in this podcast. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think you start off with explaining why you don't hunt on public land. Yes. Tell us why. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very simple. White men with guns make me nervous. Yeah. No matter what setting, like I am never comfortable with a white man with guns. The history of white men using guns is long, deep, tragic, awful, infuriating, and terrible. And so it's interesting because like this article has been part of the conversation within like the hunting community, mainstream hunting community to some degree. And on Facebook, you know, like you never read the comments, but like I read the, the comment section to this article. And one of the things that has been offered as a rebuttal has been like, tell me a time when a white person killed a black person while hunting, right? That hasn't happened. And I'm not aware of any hunting accidents where a black person has been killed by a white person. But there have been plenty of other situations in this country where white people have killed black people. Two years after I moved to West Virginia, a black man who had just bought a property within the state was there surveying it with his brother and their neighbor thought that there were two intruders on his land, but they weren't there on their brother's land, decided that he was going to stop these intruders. So from his house, 
got out his hunting rifle, shot them both dead, and then called the police and said, I've captured two intruders. And the murderer was white, and the two men he killed were black. And there's just literally thousands of stories like that in this country. And so, you know, and that's not even with like all the police violence, you know, Philando Castile saying, I have a concealed carry weapon. And then five seconds later, he's dead. So I just don't want to give <laughs> nervous white people who have a firearm a reason to shoot first, ask questions later. I just don't do it. Right. And I think that I've been fortunate enough to be in a position as a professor making a good enough income and having access to different communities and different people where I can spend the time to get to know people, get comfortable with them. And then they are in a position where they have land that I can, that I can go on top. And so there's no need to put myself at risk, either imagined or real on public land. And there's plenty of folks here. I think it might be different if I were at West where there's just a lot of public land. I'd have to think about that. And even if I did, and I probably will at some point as I get better at hunting, because right now I'm not very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I might venture out into public land and get more comfortable with firearms and get more comfortable with just sort of being a person in that pace. But for now, no, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that there were private lands that you could hunt on until I read your article. And I didn't know that this article was kind of sparked by or as a continuation of the interview that you did with the late Anthony Bourdain in mm. Parts Unknown. How did that come about? Yeah, so being on that episode, and I didn't talk because I was just super nervous the entire time. So they actually had me sit next to him for that dinner. And I didn't know that until like an hour before dinner was going to be served. So good friends of mine, Amy Dawson and Mike Costello, who were the hosts of that dinner. They are the owners of Lost Creek Farm. So shout out to them. And they also have a really amazing podcast called the Pickle Shelf Radio Hour. And they're just fantastic, amazing people. So I was introduced to them through a colleague at WVU. And Mike and I became like best buddies, like that moment in uh, Step Brothers, where they're like, did we just become best friends? That's how I feel. <laughs> from like five minutes of talking with Mike because we were both interested in, in hunting, both interested in foraging, really obsessed with food. Mike is a trained chef, a journalist. And so, yeah, we just really connected. And a year and a half later, he was like, hey, so Anthony Bourdain's coming to town. And he and I had hung out and I'd spent time on Amy and, and Mike's farm and everything. So he's like, hey, well, you should come to this because you have this interest and you have this perspective as a Black person and it'll be cool. But I was just nervous because this is an episode about West Virginia. I'm not from West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And many of the other people who were at the dinner were and or had, you know, lived in West Virginia for a long time. And I felt like I had these really deep connections. So I was mostly silent for that dinner. But I did ask Anthony, he didn't make it into the show, like what was his experience of race? Because he spent a lot of time in the southern part of West Virginia where there's still a large black community in Welch. And he didn't really have an answer. He was like, I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Classic Anthony Bourdain. <laughs> right. right. So yeah, I was a little bit disappointed that that exchange didn't make it in, but it wasn't really a great question. And I don't really remember what I said. Yeah. But this sort of like overarching theme of the way that race and land play out is really kind of like the arc of exploring the issues of race through the lens of hunting. 
And so when you think about like rural landscapes, 90%, over 90% of rural land is owned in the United States is owned by white people. Right. And that's where you go hunt on private land. You go hunt on somebody's farm or somebody's property, right? So if you're going to hunt on private land, your chances are you're going to have to talk to some white people. If they want, they grant you permission to hunt on their land. And so that already is like a somewhat intimidating conversation for a black person. Like, let me talk to this white person about coming onto their land. <laughs> right. Especially in a country where we're all about like, this land is, is my land. And if you try to trespass, I will, I can shoot you on sight. Right. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> or if I think you're trespassing, yeah. I'm not even going to call the police, which would likely have resulted, not, I would say likely have resulted, but wouldn't have necessarily had a safer outcome given the, the record of the way the police react to black people in certain spaces. And then you think about like the politics of rural America. And I should emphasize that that story I told about the thing that happened with this white man shooting two black men is not indicative of West Virginia, right? That's not right. like a West Virginia yeah. thing. That's rural America. That could have happened anywhere. Mm-hmm. So no shade on West Virginia for that. No specific shade on West yeah. Virginia for that. <laughs> That's just the racial dynamics here in this country. So you think about like accessing land to uh, accessing these resources and why most of the rural land in this country is owned by white people. It's not because black people are like, oh, we prefer the city. It's because those are places that were less terrible for black people, less violent for black people, at least at the time, and why many black people left the South and migrated North. The Great Migration, I think it should be called something different. There's nothing great about it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, (laughs) people were leaving because the Klan and white supremacist groups were literally killing black people for participating in this project that is the American dream, right? Like, give up your land. And that's after indigenous people were removed from the land, right? And so there's all this history. And as a black person learning to hunt, who didn't grow up hunting, grew up in the suburbs, but wanting to have this experience, being really curious about all aspects of food and being an ecologist and wanting to be more responsible with the meat that I consume, in the same way of sitting in meetings as the only black person, there's all of this extra calculus and equations of social interactions and things that I'm working with. If I want to get good at hunting and have that experience, there's all of this stuff that I have to do that my white counterparts don't have to do. Right. You just have to put a lot more thought and caution into it. Yeah. The consequences of me wandering on of being in a space where I am not supposed to be or not expected to be are literally life and death. And that's just not the same for a white person who's like, goes off to somebody's land and like wanders over to the next house. It's like, oh, I expect this. I had hunting season. You know, the house might be, I expect to see white guys. Just yesterday, I saw somebody over there. Oh, that person wandered over. Oh, he's probably fine. I'll just run out and tell him like, hey, so that's the property line. So you should go back that way. But if I see a black person, and I've never seen a black person in this space ever. And they're holding a gun. Yeah. I got to do something. Yeah, it's just interesting because I think for someone like you who appreciates food and how we get our food and you come at it from like an ecologist perspective, you want to be able to have a more wholesome, less fearful experience when you're going out into nature and looking for your food. You don't want to have to worry about other factors that may make you food instead. <laughs> right. 
lack of a better term. I don't know how to say it, but from being predator to being predated. Right. And I will say this because as a Black person, you always have to say this, right? Otherwise, you invite more angst and people shut down. My personal experiences in learning how to hunt have been overwhelmingly positive. Right. I have never been chased off of somebody's land and never had racial slurs hurled at me from somebody. I have a, a friend who owns some property just outside of, uh, owns a farm just outside of Morgantown. And his neighbor, shout out to Mitch, who's a white guy, like was very welcoming, uh, helped me sight in my rifle. All of this stuff like came out when I was hunting and moved me to a different spot that he thought might be better for me. Right. And so, you know, people have been very open and very willing to help. And so the hunting community that I've experienced, and I think sort of more broadly, is like on a one-on-one interpersonal basis, they're very welcoming and very open. But when you start talking about these issues at a higher level, at a structural level, that's when there's a lot of resistance. And I have experienced hostility from people it's been virtual, it's been online and stuff. People being resistant to this, to thinking about these dynamics and thinking about like hunting and land and use from the perspective of structural racism, indigenous genocide, and those sorts of things. So, you know, it's a bit of a disconnect and I can value and appreciate and recognize people's interpersonal kindness while still holding the structure accountable and holding people's connection to that structure, which is racist, which is genocidal accountable. Right. But just another day for people of color, like, you know, holding the two complex ideas together at the same time. I think I should also just take this opportunity to also tell listeners that, yes, it's these stories are just from an individual's perspective. We're not making or attempting to make any blanket statements peace love and unity but we also do want to talk about the realities of what it means to be a person of color in the environmental profession and also being in natural spaces and so you know going back to your article what you say in the article is it's really about white supremacy it's about how white supremacy has kind of like manifested itself in the ownership of majority of the rural land and that all this land was stolen. And you also talk about how we need to start having these uncomfortable conversations or we're not going to progress as the society that we were founded upon, which is like all people, I should say, are equal, right? So while you recognize that majority of your experiences of having these conversations with white people about learning the history and the realities of the land on which we live in, most of the times you've received like a negative reception or reaction to it. What does it look like when white people are more willing to accept the history of their ancestors and know that it's not a personal attack, like you said in your article, but it's just more of it happened and most of our ancestors kind of like they kind of sat back and didn't do anything when indigenous communities were being kicked out of their lands or when African-Americans were being lynched. You give all these examples in your article. What does it look like when we have that kind of solidarity? Yeah, it's hard and it's painful, right? It's ugly. I mean, that's what it looks like. But on the other side of that, there's a solidarity and a connection and just sort of a sense of community that is beyond anything that 
folks can imagine when you're able to transcend structural violence and you're able to transcend a history and work with people to create something better, it's one of the most beautiful things that I've ever experienced. But I think that there are a couple of thoughts that I think that sort of speak to this. One of them is, I think, one of the most enduring legacies of housing segregation and just spatial segregation of people is our current political climate around issues of race. And I say that it's very easy to hate people or to be afraid of people or to misunderstand people from afar. But when they're right up close, they're right next to you, they're living in community with you, it becomes much more difficult to form a negative opinion of people. I mean, assuming that you know the people that you're around aren't assholes. And so I reflect a lot about on the fact that the most white people, and most people, but particularly white people, have very little experience with people of color in any sort of meaningful, sustained way. And the white people that I know in my life who I consider to be white people who are living in solidarity with and in consciousness of these structural issues are all white people who have had really formative experiences and sustained experiences with people of color, right? It's very rare that I've met. In fact, I can't think of any white person that I know who I trust to see enough of whiteness to not put me in danger as a black person. They've all had experiences where they were like, oh yeah, I spent time in this particular area or I went to a school that was 30% black or I spent a lot of time and I was really drawn to African-American authors as a young kid. And then I went and worked in these communities and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I'm also not mentioning like people who have had interpersonal relationships. I think that's one of those things that people like to think that, oh yeah, I've dated a black person. Oh, I've dated a person of color. That means I understand. Oh, no. <laughs> but, I, have, I have friends who are people of right, color. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you need to have an interaction with a community and not just an individual, right? So I think that that's something that's really important. And so what it looks like is white people spending meaningful social time of their own social time, seeking out and being in community and relationship with communities of color. And sort of in an academic setting, I think one of the things that I am sort of gently encouraging white folks to do is like ask the question, like, who are your friends? I mean, that is a starting point, right? It can't just be one friend. But like, what are you listening to when you want to relax? Like, who do you call up when you want to just like unwind and shoot the shit and go have drinks? Who are your children, if you have children? Like, are your children reading and seeing brown people, people of color, black people? How are you engaging sort of in your own personal time around this issue? And if you're not, then you're really not doing anything, right? Right. And so it looks like a sustained engagement. But it's painful and it's ugly because white people have to confront this history that either their ancestors were directly involved in the suffering of people of color, and depending on how far you go back and who you, and where you're from, like you're going to find several people who were directly involved. But certainly you have relatives and family members who benefited from being considered white. One of the things you know, I had students in class said that like you know, the topic of reparations came up and they were like, yeah, I mean, you know, we can't go back and 
it would be really difficult to determine who deserves reparations, who doesn't. And my family came here as immigrants, so like we didn't own slaves, and we didn't do this, and we didn't do that. Yeah, but your family benefited from coming to a country where they were considered white, or at least not black or indigenous. Right. And there were benefits from that. And so the system benefited you regardless, or you benefited from that system because solely of your skin color. Right. So one of the things I think that's been interesting and effective is asking white people who are my age, like, have you talked to your parents about where they were when Martin Luther King was assassinated? Or Think about your own experience. Did you grow up with Black people or people of color? Why not? What did your parents tell you about those people? Or where were your grandparents when these historical events happened? Where were your parents or grandparents when Emmett Till was murdered? Mm. You know, my dad was the same age as Emmett Till. Actually, a year younger. You know, so like have these conversations with your folks to understand their own perspective about these things. And just like continuing education, challenging people to really understand the more complete history. There's a really great podcast, Seen on Radio. It's hosted by John Bewin, who's a white guy, and Chenjariah Kumanika has been a guest and sort of like a sustained correspondent on it. And right now they are running a series called The Land That Never Was, which looks at the foundations of America. And it's a really bad time for me to be listening to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> As like the structure of this country is in question and has been in question for, I think, more explicitly for people since sometime in November of 2016, I guess, you know, picking a random date there. <laughs> but one of the things that this show is challenging listeners to grapple with is the fact that this country was never founded on the principle of freedom for everyone. Yeah. It was founded on the principle that rich, land owning white men would be free to continue to build their own personal wealth and do whatever they want. That's what we talk about when we talk about American freedom. We don't talk about freedom for all. That's not what the writers of the Constitution, the authors of the Constitution had in mind. There are notes from the Constitutional Congress about how they were very skeptical of representative democracy. Like They were like, oh no, that's not going to be good. That means that the people could rise up. Yeah. (laughs) And there's so much about the way that our country functions and structured that, that, you know, supports this idea. And so I think it's important to challenge the white people in our lives to engage with this, to like, don't just accept the myths, because as a person of color or a woman or a member of the LGBTQ community, like, we all collectively understand that, that there are structures in place that we understand that this country wasn't built with us in mind, right? And so we have to be attuned to the ways in which the structures of this country work against us and try to work within that. And so one thing that we can do is to challenge the white people in our lives, if we're willing, and to recognize that and to grapple with that. And so that's what I try to do. And it's unpleasant. One of my favorite movies is The Matrix. And like waking up to the reality of the United States of America being a a racist, settler colonial, white supremacist, patriarchal state is like waking up in the matrix. Poop all in your mouth, you gotta pull it out, you get flushed. Food tastes horrible. Food tastes horrible. (laughs) Like it's, you know, it's rough. Yeah. That's that's why it's so hard to have conversations with white people about structural oppression. Because I think there is a sense for many white people that 
they have to give up this pleasant reality. You know, all you have to do is work hard. <laughs> all you have to do is be nice to people. All you have to do is like follow the law and everything will be okay. Right. And if you're a white man, yes, everything's going to be fine if you do those things. Yeah. But we know that's bullshit. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's, I mean, it's a big challenge. Yeah. And my patience with walking with white people through that process. Yeah. I mean, it ebbs and flows, right? Sometimes I have time and sometimes I just don't have time or energy right. to do that. And I think it's okay because you are a human being at the end of the day and you need to preserve your own emotional, mental, spiritual state. And yes, educating another person about racism who hasn't necessarily had to live through it on a daily basis, it can get quite taxing. I think at the end of the day, what you explained earlier on is just what would help us kind of move towards solidarity is just educating yourself and having meaningful experiences with individuals from communities of color and having meaningful interactions with those communities of color without any like judgments, but also being very attuned to any thoughts that may come across your mind <laughs> while you're interacting with those communities, those individuals, and kind of stopping yourself and asking yourself, why do I think this way? What is it about my upbringing that has made me think this way? Because if you grew up in a homogenous environment or community, then that's all you know. And of course, it's going to make you uncomfortable to get out of that. So it's not just like, I mean, in this case, like we are talking about white people, but I feel like based on like my own personal experiences, seeing community, like having experience interacting with homogenous communities, I see this type of trend as well. Like in the South Asian community, like we have these downfalls as well. Yeah. I think that, yeah, any sort of homogenous community in any community or identity that's supported by power structures, right? I know that this has been a personal challenge for me and for a lot of Black men that I know to like confront patriarchy, right? And like, how do we, as people who are supported by a patriarchal structure, it's racist for sure, but it's, I mean, it's also patriarchal. Like, how do you divorce yourself from those power structures and challenge yourself in the ways that you think about things and thinking about at least my own personal calculus about like what white people I can directly walk with on this journey of understanding structural racism and being better actors towards structural racism. I think that one hard line is I find it impossible to deal with people who are not willing to examine the obvious contradictions that they hold, right? And so for a person who's an about racist and, and everything, like obviously there's just not working. But one of the toughest things I, I found is working with so-called white liberal folks who espouse this rhetoric of everybody is equal and I like treat everybody the same or I recognize these sorts of things. But then that consciousness around these issues isn't actually reflected in their actions. That line that James Baldwin has, and he has so many, like, I don't believe what you say because I see what you do. Mm. It's such an important line. I actually mentioned that to a white person uh, a couple of years ago. And that didn't go well. They were like, what do you mean? So I sort of judge who I can walk with by how willing are they to be challenged on their obvious contradictions, right? It's like, yeah. 
I am an advocate, I am an ally in, in this regard. It's like, okay, so do you understand X, Y, and Z? Or have you spent time in these communities that you have access to these people and sort of like, oh, what are you reading? What are you listening to? Like these sorts of things. And if people are resistant to that, to having sort of who they are and how they move through the world questioned by a person who obviously has more personal experience and likely has more knowledge, scholarly knowledge on these issues, if they're unwilling to be sort of like gently challenged, then they're not somebody that, that I think is really worth the time to walk with. But there are some people who can sit and self-reflect and their identity as a good white person doesn't crumble when they're challenged. And they're like, oh, wow, that's a good point. I say this, but I don't actually know any black people. <laughs> I don't actually understand these subcultural references. Or If you're in an academic setting, it's like, oh, yeah, I've never had a black student. I've never recruited a black student. or I've never spent time at the Black Student Union, or all of these things that signal that you actually are invested in these communities. Some people are able to hear that criticism and then be like, oh, wow, you know what? I really need to change. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. Thank you for making that point. And then they do that. And then it's like, cool, let's go, white person. Let's walk <laughs> this journey. Yeah. But I think so many get to that point where they'd rather hold on to the idea that they are a good, non-racist white person and not want to move beyond that to being an anti-racist white person and actually walk the walk. Doing that work, which is very hard work. Yeah. And I applaud anyone who actually does like make a conscious effort to walk that path because it's not easy. It makes you question every element of like your being and how you were raised and kind of yeah. deconstructs that. So a lot to come to terms with yeah and you have to have a strong sense going in that you're going to be okay mm -hmm. or you have to believe it right yeah. you have to believe that you're going to be okay right. on the other side of reconstructing yourself right if you are worried that your identity you won't know who you are on the other side of it and if that idea scares you then you're going to stay plugged into the matrix yeah nobody's forcing you i mean like it's kind of nice on the other side if you if you see it that way <laughs> right right and the last thing I'll just say is like I really do think that a lot of white people who resist understanding this, I think a part of their subconscious really believes that they are not going to survive that process. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. That they are not going to survive it intact, that they will literally lose their minds and lose themselves if they accept these realities more into the forefront of their consciousness and then deal with them. Right. You literally don't know who they will be, and that scares them so much, and they just resist violently, which is why it's really important as people of color to know what white people you can work with and what, which ones you can't. Right. So we're coming close to the end of our conversation here, but I, I really want to just kind of tie into our conversation about conservation, white settler ideologies and how that impacts the work that you do with the California condors and also then how that plays into your experiences of hunting as a black man, mm -hmm. <laughs> a white supremacy. And then we also talked about kind of like allyship. So it was a lot of good stuff, but I think like that is our experiences in a sense. And where do you go from here <laughs> as an academic, as a researcher, as an ecologist? navigating a world where you're probably going to be the quote-unquote one of your kind 
in these spaces for a long time. What does your future for yourself look like? Ooh, that's a really good question. Big question. I think my number one priority through all of this, no matter what space I'm in, professional, personal, whatever, is to build strong relationships with people that I can trust and to continue to educate myself and to live in a way that is more respectful of the relationships that I have with non-human species and environments. And a lot of that involves honoring and understanding and doing my best to live in ways that emulate the original people of these lands, right? So to me, it all boils down to relationships, relationships with other humans, relationships with your environment, and making sure that those are rooted in reciprocity, right? This principle that really is throughout Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, that we have responsibilities to those folks that we are dependent on and that are dependent upon us. And so however that plays out, and I think it's been part, part of the reason why my professional career has kind of crossed over into a different sort of systems and different organisms and these sorts of things, and it kind of meanders in a really pleasant way because for me, it's not about necessarily like a species or a system. It's about making sure that I am in relationship with people, humans, and other environments that are living in a way that's going to result in healing and love and support and all sorts of things. So, you know, I'm working with you know, California condos now. We'll see what the limits of the relationships with the people who are also working with condors are, right? Mm-hmm. When and if I reach a wall on that and that those relationships no longer support me in sort of like this overarching mission, then you know, I'll move on to something else. Right. Which is what got me into working with condors in the first place, right? And has also gotten me into hunting and has also gotten me into like researching about hunting and writing about hunting and what that has to do with food systems. And so, yeah. But at the end of the day, it's about relationships, responsibility, and reciprocity and healing and love and good food. Mm-mm, yes, good food. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's like, that's so important. <laughs> yes, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, I'm the kind of person who, after I've had breakfast, I'm like, so what am I going to make for lunch? Yes. <laughs> Yes. What's for dinner? What about tomorrow? I'm like one of the hobbits from the Lord of the Rings. What about second breakfast? (laughs) (laughs) What about second breakfast? Absolutely. And and like really like I low-key cannot trust people who don't have like that kind of relationship with food. Like (laughs) that just signals that you are prioritizing your own nourishment, but also there's just it's such an amazing way to experience the world through food, like through through nourishment. And it feels so good. And it's endlessly interesting and mm-hmm. stimulating, and it just sort of lends itself to building relationships with people. And so, yes, like if somebody was like, "I don't really like food. I don't really like to eat," I'm like, mm. <laughs> "Yeah, <Ooh. laughs> I doubt your existence." Yeah. Are you happy? Like, are you okay? <laughs> and I met people like that who were just like, "Yeah, food's not just just doesn't interest me," and I'm like, "What?" Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I don't know how you function. I'm just know. like, I respect that, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know. food is amazing. It is. It really <laughs> is. Yeah. I mean, when I think about like my dissertation and the relationships that I've made since I've moved to West Virginia and this conversation right now, like 
that food is involved in the way in, in the ways in which we relate to to the things that nourish us are really important. So yeah. I have to uh, feed my sourdough starter later on today because I've gotten into like sourdough bread, which is <laughs> such a thing that like people middle class, it's such like a middle class white white people thing to do. Like <laughs> sourdough bread. Yeah, make sourdough at home, like because I've got time, right? Yeah. It's delish. But it's just cool. It's like yeah. bread, water, and now I've got a active culture and stuff. And so yeah. It's very cool. <laughs> Random story. They found a yeast sample in a clay pot in Egypt yep. and the scientist who found it was able to make bread yeah. out of that thousands of year old yeast yep. sample. I'm like, what? Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. I mean, it, like, how can you not just be like, one, I really want to eat that bread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that's just the coolest thing ever. I mean, having a connection with people yeah. thousands of years ago, and, and and like literally a direct connection. Yeah, and them. not just people; it's the Egyptians. I right. mean, right. And so we'll see. We'll see where things take me in in that regard. Yeah, and we shall follow you for sure. So I have the lightning round too, um, and the the first thing that comes to your mind. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? So the podcast that I mentioned, Seen on Radio, The Land mm-hmm. that Was, is like breaking my brain. Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Broke My Brain. Yeah. An Indigenous People's History of the United States by uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Otiz, Broke My Brain, and all in a good way, right? Yeah. <laughs> Clyde Woods wrote a book called Development, Drowned and Reborn about New Orleans, and it's a long history of New Orleans. Mm. Fortunately, he passed away a number of years ago. He's a brilliant scholar, Black man. I finally watched Moonlight for the first time. Oh, okay. (laughs) And that was just such a beautiful movie, incredible So that was really impactful. Been listening to a lot of Bill Withers since he passed, and being from West Virginia, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly important. So that's been like really healing during this difficult time. This isn't recently, but it's kept coming up. The last thing I'll say is Carolyn Finney's book, Black Faces, White Spaces. Yes, yes. She's amazing. Yeah, I want to interview her yes. one day. Yes, yes, you do. <laughs> She's like at the top of my list and I'm kind of like working my way to her, I just like from my own skills perspective, I'm like, you know, I can't just go in and be like, so what's your story? Let's just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think one of the things that's really great about her and like she's been on podcasts and giving mm-hmm. talks and stuff like that is that she's just incredibly approachable in these settings. Yeah. So yeah, I would reach yeah. out. Oh, I will. I will. I just want to <laughs> be a little bit more thoughtful and intentional about yeah. it. But what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Sleep. And it's like a personal habit that I was born with. <laughs> it's a little bit frustrating for my wife, having two young kids who get up at five yeah. every morning. But getting good sleep is the best medicines. Yeah. And I think that so much of the structures of the way that we function in, in American society just doesn't value it, right? If you're sleeping, then you're lazy. If you're sleeping, then you're not productive and all this stuff. Because I'm really good at sleep, resisted <laughs> that that mantra. So I think like sleep is really important, and like stretching and meditation is something that I'm not as good at as I am with sleep. But it's just really important to like 
sort of check in with yourself internally and physically. Yeah. In that same vein, I like naps too. <laughs> naps are good. <laughs> naps are, naps are glorious. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've received? The best piece of advice I received came recently from two colleagues of mine, Black women, and we were talking about sort of what it means to be a Black person in academia. And I don't have tenure right now, and so as academics know that like earning tenure is really important because it's job security, and with that job security comes, I think, the ability to be a little bit more outspoken about some of the issues that you see within any academic space. And this is not unique to the current institution where I'm at, but like all institutions of higher learning really struggle with issues of racial diversity and racial consciousness. But I've been nervous about speaking out as one of the very few Black people sort of in this setting. And one of the things that these two colleagues told me was that you have a responsibility to speak out. And this is something that other people have said, but they really crystallized for me that you have a responsibility to make a better place in the time that you have. And that people who are going to be resistant to the work of making a place a better place are going to be resistant no matter what. Right? Like Tony Morrison said, there's always going to be someone, I'm paraphrasing, of course, there's always going to be someone who wants you to account more for what you are fighting for. And so you just have to speak truth to power. And of course, not be reckless, but at the same time, you don't know what the future holds, so you need to speak out. So yeah, that's the best advice that I've gotten. That's a good one. I think it's also just a, a process, at least for me, it's do I just speak out and stay with the feelings of lack of action? Or do I really stand up for what I believe in and run a risk or loss of whatever it may be? But I think at the end of the day, it's, it's just more fulfilling to actually stand up for what you believe in. So that's a really good advice there to share. Yeah. What is your superpower? I think it is my ability to be adaptable and to get to know people. I think at least put people at enough ease that they feel somewhat comfortable sharing something about themselves and, and share themselves with me. So yeah, I think that's my superpower. I try to try to be open and, and welcoming and kind to people in a way that invites conversation and getting to know them. So yeah. All right. So we're in the last minute here. So how can we follow you on your journey? So I am on the Twitter and Instagram as uh, out there, J-C-H. So O-U-T-T-H-E-R-E-J-C-H. My professional website is wilderness.wvu.edu. So you can check in on my condor research and hunting research and lots of like really cool condor videos on that site. Yeah, I did see those. Very cool. Yeah. It's like slow-mo yeah, slow of the video. birds <laughs> taking off. That's so cool. Yeah, indeed. I think those are probably the two best places. All right. So is there anything else that you would like to add before we put a pause to our conversation here? The only thing I want to add is just to thank you for thank you. this platform and the space that you created because it's incredible and we need more conversations like this to be or a larger part and just want to recognize like your work and your vision in this. So oh, thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm getting death threats. 
Just kidding. Got to counterbalance. Got to counterbalance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for participating and for being forthcoming. Yeah. And I know it's not easy. It's a vulnerable position that you've put yourself in, but power to your truth. And I'm honored and humbled to have an opportunity to carry and amplify your message, your voice, and hopefully we can create change from this. Agreed. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.